I'm Nuria Martinez-Keel. And I'm Kayla Branch. You're listening to The Source. Thanks for joining us as we discuss the Oklahomans' most impactful stories with the reporters who wrote them. And we are glad that we're both finally back together on an episode of the podcast. But next week, I will be gone on furlough again, so you won't hear me for a bit. And then I will be absent the week after. So hopefully you can hear us back together again at the end of May. And we're still dedicated to bringing you, uh, again, the most impactful stories from the Oklahoman. This week, some Oklahomans ventured out as businesses reopen. And farmers and ranchers deal with the impact of COVID-19. unprecedented. I mean, we've had issues like the China tariff, which has affected, you know, the amount of merchandise being able to come in, the prices of merchandise and all, but nothing like this. What has happened is we dropped initially 97%. Gradually over the four-week period, uh, it grew. Where we got up, the best week we had was about 9%. We closed uh, right after the governor issued his order and we had about 24 hours notice so we had to close down our 25 retail locations and our 20 attended donation centers. We lost about three million dollars over the past six weeks. Business editor David Dishman is with us to discuss the businesses and establishments starting to reopen in Oklahoma. Dishman, thanks for being here with us. Thanks for having me. So the state government began the first part of the first phase of reopening on April 24th, allowing personal care and retail businesses to resume operations. Then part two of phase one started on May 1st, and an even greater number of places got the green light to open again. That's when you saw restaurants, entertainment venues, theaters, gyms, tattoo parlors, and houses of worship opening their doors. But for some, even with the go-ahead, they chose to stay closed. So you know, for those that are reopening, what guidelines has the state and the CDC given uh, so that they can properly and safely reopen? It's mostly, you know, it's all the same stuff we've been seeing. Uh, it's, you know, social distancing, even within a, within a business. It's uh, making sure you're wearing masks and gloves and, and just all the kind of your standard uh, common sense safety practices. And also just limiting the number of people uh, in an establishment. Uh, so you can't, you still, they're trying to prevent big congregations and crowds uh, gathering in close quarters. Uh, bars are one that have not uh, fully reopened yet. And uh, when they do, they're also implementing measures to space stuff out. So kind of that typical, stereotypical thought of a crowded bar, that's, that's what they're trying to stay away from. Anything goes. I have not shaved, cut my hair. So basically, you your hair a little bit long up top, cut the sides pretty low. You know, whatever. It's I not mean, bald. I, mean, it's, I know it's not bald enough like that because you like running to the beard. You know, just whatever. It's uh, it's uh, it's time for a new style. You know, coming out of quarantine. So you recently went to a local barber shop to get a post quarantine haircut and I'm sure you've gotten many haircuts in your life but how did the experience of this one stand out from all the rest that you've ever gotten I did yeah so when this all started I thought uh you know 
I, I went a day or a couple days without shaving, and I thought, this, all right, this could go along for a while. So let's just see what happens. Let's see how long my beard grows. I'll just not get a haircut, um, not try and clean anything up myself. And with the idea that eventually I'll get to go back to a, and I'll meet some new barber in a barber shop and, and see how they're doing. And so that was yesterday. I, uh, I finally got cleaned up, shaved up, trimmed up. And uh, it was, it was different. It was um, odd because as he, they take appointments and so they, they do appointments only right now. Um, and he normally does appointments only. Uh, Michael Mitchell down in uh, South Oklahoma City. And there were a few people in there. Uh, another barber was working some of the time. Um, but as people came in, they were asked to wait uh, separate and, and spaced out. One guy came in with a full painter's mask, uh, the, the big uh, full mask. Um, and he apparently comes in fairly often now. Uh, he just likes hanging out. He's, he's good friends with the barber. And, um, so it was, just, it was just different, you know. It was weird knowing that a lot of things have happened and that this guy has been uh, out of business or away from business for several weeks and unable to do what he does and what he loves. Um, it was very clear that he loves his job and loves doing it and he just couldn't for, for you know, over a month. The atmosphere aspect in businesses has been interesting like even when you would go on a walmart run it's like everyone here knows that there's this undercurrent of tension maybe isn't the right word but like we all know that there's a thing going on and it's a big thing and a serious thing and but we're all here trying to get groceries and i don't know that's been an interesting component just for me through the pandemic too yeah i think that's true and i i asked uh michael yesterday kind of about that because the uh, what you point out is there's some people who are very, very cautious and taking every precaution they can, they've been told or suggested, uh, whatever, uh, because they're very concerned. Others don't care at all to the point where they're frustrated that things are, you know, shut down in any way. And so, um, I was able to ask Michael yesterday about some of that and his thoughts and if he had received any negativity or pushback for um, reopening already. And he, he said he hadn't, but he was aware of it, uh, you know, kind of percolating online. And, um, you know, he he also mentioned that some of these businesses, and, and I've heard it from others too, that there's a bit of a a need to open and a bit of a pressure to open just overall if uh, a restaurant or uh, uh, eating a in, in, you know any any sort of business like that is not reopening while others around them are that's business that they're losing and could hurt them in the long run uh, if they lose some of that market share to you know a competitor that sort of thing so it's been really tough for folks especially those who would prefer to stay closed a little longer but may not feel that they have a choice i'm glad that you brought that point up because you know even though certain establishments are allowed to be open that there are those who are hesitant and there have been those who you know 
maybe have decided to continue to stay closed regardless of those points that you just made. I mean, what have we heard from businesses who have said, I'm like, I get that I can be open, but I'm not going to open. Yeah, I know that some uh, entertainment venues uh, have, have, especially when it was announced that, okay, we're going to start opening back up, uh, they expressed hesitancy and they were saying, no, well, we, I mean, we really can't. Uh, Something like a theater or concert venue, uh, it's just almost impossible for them to do what they do without close crowds. That's, that's part of the vibe of a concert or, um, you know, is, is getting together and experiencing something in a, in a group and in a crowd. And in those types of places, sometimes they're built in order to make something feel more crowded and more packed because nobody wants to go to, you know, a dance club that's, uh, so open. It feels like the middle school dance in the gym, you know, um, and and so they, they kind of work to pack things in, and that's the worst possible situation for a business right now. They they can't do that. Um, so yeah, some have some have just said, you know, we're not gonna we're not gonna open up quite yet uh, in in that sense, and and that's just how they're approaching it. So similarly, the mayors of Norman, Tulsa, and Oklahoma City had very apparent reservations about reopening the state this soon. And I think a lot of residents in those cities were wondering if these mayors, like they have before, would employ stricter rules within their city limits than what the governor has enacted statewide. But it didn't turn out that way. All three mayors fell in line with the governor's reopening plan, even though they didn't seem very excited about it. So could you tell us maybe why that played out the way that it did? Well, I think I think to first, not all those mayors fell quite as in line as others. Uh, I know uh, Norman Mayor Bria Clark had uh, was su- they were sued by some local salon owners to about an injunction dealing with their uh, their timeline of reopening. Um, and I believe the judge uh, ruled in favor of the plaintiffs um, because they had they had tried to implement a slightly slightly different version from the state. And so there was a lot of talk of, is that just postulating and politicking and, uh, and are businesses falling in the crosshairs? And I mean, I think folks can come to their own conclusions on that. Um, obviously the judge, uh, ruled that, uh, like I said, in favor of those plaintiffs. So that's been interesting to see. And I know some businesses, again, the, the viewpoint from a business owner changes from business to business and not necessarily city to city. So it's not to say that Oklahoma City businesses are more prone to a slow rollout or Norman businesses are are wanting to go faster or whatever it may be. Um, But uh, I, I think that that's we're seeing that some of that and that's all it's a weird it's weird to see the politics of that and and kind of the liberties of what a business has and what they're able to do compared to what their municipal and state governments are telling them they can and can't do. And, and so the reason I ask is because we, we saw Oklahoma City Mayor David Holt actually 
in tears about this, about the prospect of reopening the state as soon as the governor wanted. And, and he said he would have chosen a different date, but he would have agonized over the decision, even if it was opening on June 1st or July 1st and not May 1st. So I'm trying to think of, you know, the logistical reasoning for why they decided to go ahead and go along with the mayor or with the governor's plan and and some of the, as Mayor Holt said, external pressures that led to that happening. I know this is a little bit outside of your coverage area, but inevitably it's affecting businesses across the state in Oklahoma City as well. Yeah, I think, you know, I I can't, I just was going to say with regard to some of that decision-making and that agonizing process, we I think everybody recognizes that this is a health issue and it can kill people and people are dying. And you have to weigh that against the fact that a shutdown of this long, um, you know, that's so widespread is torpedoing not just the local economy, not just the state economy, not just the national economy, but it's an international destruction to our economies. And so you have, they have to weigh these, uh, these factors of, okay, how much can we keep things shut down while also knowing that if we're doing that, it's driving people out of business, they're losing their jobs, they're losing their livelihoods, which will in turn force people into poverty, They'll, it'll force our state into a massive hole, and it, it, it'll take years to recover from. And so I think that that's the, 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 big, the big question. And everybody, that's what's so hard is everybody has a different uh, idea of how, what that breaking point is, of how long and when can we go back to opening stuff up? When is it? Um, when is the the cost more than the the benefit to staying closed and and that sort of thing? And so, if the mayor felt like he would have rather waited longer, um, then I, I I guess that's his his thought. Uh, but you know, Oklahoma City's in a much different position than, you know, some, uh, another town in uh, Oklahoma. So that's, it's just hard. I don't, I don't, I don't really know how to answer that. Yeah. And it seems like it comes down to opportunity cost, right? You mentioned this with certain businesses who are opening, which kind of puts pressures on the businesses that are not wanting to open. They're, they're losing that opportunity to earn a profit in that period of, of extended closure. And so just to kind of wrap this back up with your haircut. I mean, what did you hear from that business owner? You know, even a a more micro level, individual business owners are also having to weigh whether they want to or how to balance the the health risk factors with the economic destruction like you talked about. Right. Now he had um, a bit of perhaps a luxury in all of this in that uh, he could just open his doors and uh, kind of leave it up to the barbers that worked in his shop to to decide whether they wanted to start cutting hair again or not. Um, and for a barber, if you're cutting hair, you're making money, and if you're not, you're not sort of thing. And so it was not 
he, he didn't have to necessarily deal with some of these other struggles that that other businesses are trying to f- juggle, you know, wh- the health of their employees and the uh, salaries of their employees. Um, on the other hand, he was unable to, he told me, uh, he didn't think he was eligible for uh, some of the federal paycheck protection programs um, because his business was not open, uh, not not operating. Um, he had looked into it some and, and had heard that uh, you, you had to be still operating, uh, whether it be working from home or in a limited capacity to be eligible for some of that money. So, you know, he, he came out of this, he didn't take any loans, but he did sit uh, without any income for for over a month. And, and he, he told me that he has weathered it all right personally, some himself, um, that he's kind of a saver and prepared for this uh, sort of thing for, for years. Uh, but others, others are not in that boat. Uh, and so that's, again, kind of back to what I was talking about, the agony of that decision. And, and if you go, if you're, if you're a business that uh, doesn't have much, that maybe has debts of, of, any kind or uh, operates with little margin, it's almost impossible to stop uh, working for a month and then just pick back up. You just you just can't do it. So that's that's where that ended up. Well, all the points you made, I think, speak to the struggle that's going on right now. I mean, and you mentioned the um, lawsuit that was filed against Norman Mayor Bria Clark with trying to um, push back the opening day for salons in Norman. And then there was also some talk in the news recently about um, an order, I believe, in Stillwater where they were trying to force people to wear masks. And then people were furious about that. Um, I mean, going forward, What's kind of your take on what we expect to see in the legal system when it comes to, you know, lawsuits from business owners or, um, you know, others that want to utilize a business in a certain way and feel that their, you know, rights are being kind of constrained because of this? What do you think that looks like with all the tension that's going on um, as we move forward? I Obviously, I'm not a lawyer. Uh but I, I'm really curious. Big disclaimer. <laughs> Big disclaimer. Now let me get into some legal advice, uh, some legal thoughts. I'm very curious to see if people try to challenge these these decisions, these municipal decisions or state decisions, because there was no legislative action taken to out, you know, make a formal outlawing of businesses being open, or there is no formal, uh, you know, prevention of masks or, or something like that, or enforcing of masks. And so I don't know what happens if kind of like these salon owners did, if a bar says, screw it, we're going to, we're going to open. And if people want to come, they can come. And if they want to congregate, they can congregate. And if the state wants to shut me down, then I'm going to take them to court. I don't know that you can sue anybody. Obviously we see it all the time. And so I wonder how many of those kinds of lawsuits we'll end up seeing from businesses who 
again, see an opportunity to make something happen. And that's just business in general is, is the people who succeed and the people who, uh, you know, move forward are the ones who are keeping their wits about them and looking for opportunities to progress. And sometimes that comes through legal action. And there may be things that I'm not thinking of or not aware of that, that can come up that can push a business forward. Or, um, you know, you're talking legal action. Uh, when we think of corporations and stuff, there's things that can be done. You know, we'll see, I'm sure, plenty file for bankruptcy, which a lot of people have a negative connotation with, but it's not always a bad thing. Um, it's a way to restructure uh, your business and debts and stuff like that and kind of come back leaner. And there's just a lot of positioning and maneuvering uh, with that sort of thing. Another thing I thought of was with the federal $600 uh, unemployment bump to folks who are unemployed during this time. I wondered the other day if, if there were any businesses who found out about that, whose employees uh, would make more money on a furlough or, you know, laid off or, or whatever. Um, and I mean, it, did anybody think, okay, as a business, I can furlough half my staff uh, for X number of weeks and save my company a lot of money while at the same time effectively giving my employees paid time off plus a bonus. You know, did anybody think, yeah, that's my motivation for furloughing and, hey, wink, wink, I'm going to hire you guys, you'll be back and, uh, you know, just take it as some time to stay home and stay safe because we don't need it all right now and um, our company is going to, emerge from this stronger too so it's it's there's a lot of factors like that that i'm really curious to see how that all plays out and as the you know metaphorical fog lifts on this whole dark time um i think we'll hear more stories of stuff like that or things that people have come up with to, to almost i don't want to say game the system but you know play capitalism the way it's supposed to be played so Well, I think we're all eager to see how things will turn out from this. Um, I think it'll be really fascinating to see what the business landscape looks like after or post-coronavirus, or at least in the months when this starts to wane, whenever that is. Um, so, David, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. We appreciate you joining us and sharing your thoughts. Thank you, guys. I appreciate it. Also with us this week is business reporter Jack Money to discuss a lengthy piece he did over how farmers and ranchers are faring through the pandemic. Jack, thanks for being here with us today. Today. Oh, thanks for having me, folks. I hope you all are surviving the coronavirus pandemic uh, along with the rest of for us. Sure. Still chugging along, but you know what you wrote about is a serious issue, and we are hearing about meat shortages across the nation, and there are a lot of folks who have worry as well. So, in your story, uh, you talked to a few different Oklahoma farmers and ranchers. What were some of the issues that they were facing specifically in our state? 
Uh, well, when you're talking about uh, farmers and ranchers and food supply, um, and you're talking about livestock in particular, we're, we're really talking about three separate distinct markets. Um, one is the poultry market. Um, one is the uh, uh, hog market. Um, and the other one is the beef market. So when it comes to poultry and hogs, um, those are what we call fully integrated systems, which means that farmers that grow uh, those animals um, to provide, you know, food to the world and nation are typically working for somebody else, either as a direct employee or as what we call a contract grower. Um, and But when you're talking about beef producers, those are just independent farmers and ranchers that are spread pretty much across the state. And they're independent businessmen. They run their businesses as, uh, you know, independent operations. And um, the issue that they're most concerned about right now is the amount of money that um, they're getting at the stockyards for the animals that they raise and produce. And what they've been seeing is... Um, that wholesale prices for those animals have been declining. Um, but at the same time, um, they're noting that retail prices for, uh, you know, finished beef products that are coming out of packing plants have been increasing. You spoke with agricultural experts in Oklahoma who said U.S. ranchers lost about $13.6 billion because of the coronavirus pandemic. Yet your story conveys right from the start that this unwavering optimism that farmers and ranchers feel, how are they able to stay positive and optimistic when their industry is experiencing that kind of economic loss? Well, um, it takes a special breed of person um, to be able to take the gamble um, that these guys take, you know, whenever they're putting seeds into the ground, um, there are a variety of different uh, uh, things that uh, weather could do to them to, um, you know, either significantly damage or totally wipe out crops. And we're seeing some of that um, with our wheat growers right now. Um, and um, then, you know, when it comes to, you know, raising livestock, um, you know, you have to spend the money to acquire the animals, then you have to spend the money to take care of them, and you're doing it based on the faith that whenever you take them to market, you're going to be able to get more for those animals than you spent to do all those things up front. So, you know, it takes a, takes a special kind of individual um, who, you know, <laughs> kind of believes in the believes in what he does and or what she does and and um, um, you know uh, uh, I'm, I'm not saying that they that they aren't uh, uh, having some uh, issues right now uh, but by and large I mean it's not like they're just saying you know what we're, we're just going to stop doing this um, they're they're still out there working Right. Well, and a through theme in your story was also just that the agricultural system is extremely tightly woven. And many of the folks you talked to said that if one part in that systematic chain has a problem, then the entire system is going to face some pretty significant issues. And particularly, 
there is a problem right now with packing plants. And you noted that as employees in those plants get sick, then production slows, or if, you know, those plants need to shut down for safety precautions. And one of our Oklahoman colleagues earlier this week uh, released a story about a Guyman-based packing plant that had over 100 employees contract the virus. And so there, there are clearly a lot of issues. So talk a little bit about the problem we're seeing with packing plants. And like you mentioned earlier, um, that is in causing that uh, packaged processed meat that people are trying to buy at the grocery store to have an increased cost. And are we seeing similar issues with outbreaks of the virus on ranches? So this question has a couple different parts, but I'm curious about all those different, uh, different items. Well, uh, packing plants in particular are um, vulnerable um, to, you know, communicable diseases that can be spread among the employees because there's a high number of employees. You know, they have to work very closely together. Um, the, uh, you know, I, I, I've not personally ever been inside of one, so I'm, I'm not an expert when it comes to them, but I would I would I would tend to think that um, you know the um, there's probably not enough PPE gear um, to you know be able to adequately uh, protect each individual worker um, and you know it's just it's just a tough uh, uh, situation um, because these companies that own these packing houses. Um, they've seen their markets fundamentally shift as far as where that meat's going uh, since the coronavirus uh, all began. Yeah, and Jack, you know, one thing that I'm really curious about is this disconnect that this one piece of the puzzle creates. The the meat packers in the middle um, are really c- creating kind of a bottleneck um, for suppliers and that suppliers of livestock have far more animals right now than what these slowdowns in the meat packing plants are able to handle. But at the same time, that's creating a disconnect um, on the consumer side. So can you talk a little bit about how prices might be dropping for individual livestock animals for suppliers, but on the actual grocery store shelf, we might be seeing retail prices increasing. So what's going on there? Well, it's, uh, as you indicated in the, as you prefaced your question, it's an extremely complex market. And there are a variety of different things going on that are, that are contributing to the factors that you described. First is, um, you know, just the change in demand for me and how that was impacted by uh, the coronavirus. Um, You know, as the nation really began in March to ramp up its response uh, to the virus, one of the first things that, you know, governors across the state did was they shut down restaurants. Um, And and they also, um, you know, severely curtailed the operations of other types of institutional customers like, you know, universities and schools and hospitals and things like that. And um, so in the case of the beef industry, they saw about 50% of their demand overall for everything just evaporate overnight. 
Um, in the case of the pork industry, it was about 25%, and I'm sure the poultry industry, you know, took a hit as well. Um, so that forced these packing companies um, who, you know, were producing product for those commercial customers using, uh, you know, bulk uh, packaging um they just were forced to idle those plants. There wasn't anything else they could do because there wasn't a way that they could quickly change um, the the back end of that that uh, processing um, to be able to to uh, reduce the portions of the product that they were producing and to label it appropriately so that it could be sold to you and me on the grocery shelf. So you had that going on. And then um, on, on the, uh, you know, consumer side as well, as you saw that huge decline in commercial demand, you saw a huge increase in demand on the retail side, which is, again, you and me shopping in the store because it's like, oh, my gosh, you know, we, we can't go to our favorite restaurant three or four times a week anymore um, to eat. Now we're going to have to be preparing everything at home. So um, you saw a huge spike in, in the amount of demand um, in, the, in the retail market, if you will. Um, and then I think that demand was further exacerbated and continues to be further exacerbated by the news stories that were seen about how uh, packing facilities have either been forced to close or been forced to reduce operations because that puts, you know, the thought into my mind and into your mind that, oh, my gosh, there may not be any meat available, uh, you know, uh, periodically for times to come. So I'm just going to buy as much as I can now to stock up my freezer. As long as those, you know, demands don't really change, uh, the system is adequately set up to deal with that and can continue to deal with that even as these plants uh, either temporarily go offline or, or are forced to, you know, reduce operations. But when you see a huge spike in demand on that retail side, that really reveals, you know, an, an issue with that system that's not immediately addressable. I don't know if they'll ever figure it out, but um, it's, it's, you know, a complex, it's going to be a complex problem to resolve. Right. Well, and you'd mentioned uh, earlier that you'd like to discuss some solutions and what, what they might look like. And with that note on the future, I mean, what do you expect to see in the coming months when it does come to trying to adjust to this new normal that may go on indefinitely at this moment? You know, Packers went to President Trump last week and got him to issue a, a declaration that indicated packing systems are or, or these packer plants are, uh, you know, essential businesses that, that can't be closed. Um, and, um, you know, they, they, they did that, I kind of feel like, to shield themselves from potential liabilities that they could face from employees who get sick with coronavirus um, uh, because they're being required to continue to come to work. Um, employees, on the other hand... Um, you know, uh, I, I can't speak for them specifically. Um, I haven't talked to a labor representative uh, uh, 
to address this particular issue. Um, but they, you know, they have real concerns about about their safety going forward. So, um, is that you know prompting some of them to say, you know what, I'm not going to go back to work even if the place opens? I don't know. You know, I mean, in some cases, it probably is. Um, um, I'm not sure. You know what the what the ultimate uh, solution might be. You know, I think about how the automotive industry really automated its production. Uh, operations um, over the past several decades, and you know, I kind of feel like that that uh, artificial intelligence and and the tools that are needed to carry that out probably have advanced enough uh, to make some significant changes to the way we process our meat. Um, and you know, if 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 it would not surprise me if gradually over time those begin to get implemented more and more into the packing industry where it's possible um, to reduce the need for, you know, so many uh, physical or so many human employees um, to, to do, you know, various parts of that work. And it could be underway already. Again, I've, I've, I've never been invited to take a tour of a meat plant, so, you know, I'm not really sure uh, how automated those processes are. But I do know that, that your larger uh, packers employ an incredible number of employees. So that would suggest that, that there's still a significant, you know, requirement for them in the processes that, that they use. Well, Jack, thank you so much for joining us um, and, and sharing a side of the agricultural industry that uh, is really going through a lot at the moment, a lot of complexities. Yeah. Thank you so much for your perspective and, and your knowledge. You know a lot about these things. Uh, it's like an uh, inch deep and a mile wide. It's, uh, I, I wish I knew a lot more about it than I do. But as we report on these issues and other issues, you know, we just we, we learn what we can and, and uh, add it to the knowledge bank, right? Jack, thanks so much. All right. You guys have a good day. Thanks for joining us this week. You can read all these stories and more every day in the Oklahoman and at oklahoman.com. Check back next Friday for a new episode.